morning everyone. Welcome to a new week. Public holiday today. Hope you got a rip of sleep in and a lazy day coming up. You might even get that poached egg you didn't get last week. This last week has been a bit unnerving, I have found. COVID-19 has been difficult in itself. But there are layers of difficult going on right now. Media attention has been squarely focused on the US and the riots in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. I've felt really unsettled by this, by the deep institutionalisation of racism and the way it plays out in personal acts of violence, by the social inequality in our world that our world has normalised, by the simultaneous simplicity and complexity of its roots and causes. What I've also felt so saddened by this week, however, is that while the US has burned and raged while we all watched on, it was Reconciliation Week here in Australia and the broken story of our own black and white relations continues to be so muted. In 2015, nearing the last few weeks of an eight-year sentence, David Dungay was held down by six police officers in Sydney's Long Bay Jail for refusing to stop eating a packet of rice crackers. His last words, too, were, I can't breathe, over and over, until he died. David is just one among many. I don't want to get overly political, but I do feel unsettled by the silence here. When our Prime Minister says, as a response to George Floyd, that I just think to myself what a wonderful country is Australia, he institutionalises the silencing of black lives in Australia once again. Exactly the same happens here not just in the US. The wonderful difference he's talking about is that we don't riot over it. Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated people on the planet. And since 1991, there have been more than 430 deaths in custody in Australia. Despite each death being legally subject to a coronial inquiry, not one charge has ever been laid against those in the justice system. I don't wish to valorise or legitimate behaviour that leads to imprisonment, but prison is supposed to be a place for rehabilitation, not death. It is the dispossession of land and dwelling that sits at the origins of this silencing in Australia, beginning with the lie that there was no one who occupied this land when white people arrived. This lie, at least, has been legally reconciled. The Mabo decision in June 1992 recognised the pre-existing rights of Indigenous people to their land. But the dispossession continues in many ways. The ongoing dispossession of land, yes, of rights, of culture, of sovereignty. It has also included self-dispossession and thus the issues are far from simple or one-sided. In fact, race relations in Australia are often called wicked problems in policy meaning the issues are so complex, contradictory and difficult that there appears no possibility of a solution. When I think of black-white relations in these terms, I get caught up in a depressing spiral of discourses or ways of thinking about the issues where I can't see beyond its complexity and I end up feeling powerless and a bit mute. To be honest, I actually just don't know where to start. But I also know that's just the human story. As I pondered all this, I was again drawn to what I do know is true. I know that silence and violence are both not the answer, nor the end for the narrative of human beings. I was reading the story of Noah and the Ark this week in Genesis 6. 
We often think of this as a good Sunday school story with all the compliant animals getting on the ark and the saving of Noah and his family. <coughs> da -de -da -de -da. It's actually a really crazy story of destruction and violence and an earth silenced as it disappears under the flood of all floods. It is a story about a world that has become so violent and destructive that God presses the reset button. Frankly, it is difficult to fathom God doing that. It's a difficult story. So the short of it is, Noah builds an ark, the floods come, Noah bobs around in his ship with his family, with all the animals somehow getting along for one year. For a time, Noah sends out a dove from the ship, until one day it returns with an olive branch in its beak, and then one day it doesn't return at all. In the whole biblical narrative, Noah is a picture of a future promise of the reconciliation of God with humanity. It is God re-establishing a covenant or an agreement with humans that he will never leave them or forsake them. It wasn't lost on me this week that in this story, the first sign of hope of the re-establishment of that relationship is the return of a dove with an olive branch. The dove is a symbol of peace and also a symbol of God's spirit in the New Testament, delivering a sign in the olive branch that the land has re-emerged from the formlessness of the flooded earth the re-emergence of a place to dwell and from which sustenance could be drawn. It also mirrors the creation story. The spirit hovers over the formless deep and from it emerges the ground or land, distinct from the sea. Land is important. It is important to God. It is one of the first things he creates and one of the first things he gives back to Noah after the flood. Land is also ground zero to humans, pardon the pun, regardless of culture. As a housing researcher, I know that house values have far less to do with the built form and far more to do with the value of the land a building sits on. How we value land is deeply cultural. Part of the deep injustice of dispossession for Indigenous people was the failing of the colonisers to recognise deep connection of Aboriginal law and spirituality with their use of land and then declare it empty and available for their own valuation of land as a commodified and privatised title, as something to own, occupy and develop. Much of the deep divide between black and white Australian cultures rests on the vast different, vastly different imagination of the value of land and sovereignty over the laws that govern it to this day. Back to Noah. That olive leaf is a picture of God's reconciliation with people through gifting land back to humanity. Land is a gift and is something we are given in common. In this story, the promise of land sits alongside the promise of the return of goodness, restoration and peace to the land. And as the story of God's covenant with his people unfolds, it becomes clear time and time again, like in the story of Noah, that people can't stick to their end of the bargain. We stuff up. We abuse the land. We abuse each other. We are violent and impose institutionalised silences on people, animals, the whole earth. The whole narrative of the Old Testament is this same thread over and over. God promises his people their own land, a promised land of a land of milk and honey, and his people monumentally stuffing up both the pilgrimage and its habitation. Over and over the milk goes sour and the honey gets way too sticky and the people turn on each other in violence and stop looking to God. Again and again, people worship everything but God. The thing is, God knew the land itself wouldn't bring redemption. It can't. Our hearts are too greedy and we don't know how to value God's creation properly. 
We colonise it and we own it, even if just ideologically, and order our worlds around it. We end up worshipping the land itself, and in doing so we stop looking to God. We break our part of the covenant with God all the time. We desire that peace represented in the dove and the olive branch. We talk about it, we want it, but we can't live it. Humans themselves, in policy terms, are a wicked problem. So complex, so contradictory that there seems to be little pathway to peace. God knows humans are a wicked problem. Like human policy making, God establishes an agreement between two parties, himself and humans, over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Land is always part of that covenant. And like human policy making, the covenant is never upheld by humans and it never brings peace. But unlike human policy making, God always sticks to his promise. He's part of the agreement, which is the restoration of relationship between himself and humans to bring wholeness back to the earth. The reconciliation of land and a new covenant to Noah is just a picture of this. It doesn't work. Again, humans keep losing sight of God, but it all points to the ultimate opus day, culminating in an act of sacrificial love in which God himself becomes one of us as the personification of the olive branch to humanity. Jesus is born human and lives with us, among us. He's killed by us. His death on a cross is the ultimate act of reconciliation of relationship between God and all people. This kind of sacrificial love sits at the heart of real reconciliation. The pouring out of a common grace to all humanity that surpasses issues of black and white, creed, gender identity, religiosity or demographic. The gift of Jesus' sacrificial love is the ultimate olive branch to humanity a symbol of peace and a new kind of land, the taking of a different kind of ground, this time the ground of our hearts. God's promise is no longer a land for his people to dwell in. We ourselves become the land and God dwells in us. The reconciliation of our hearts with God is where true unity is born. Reconciliation begins at the foot of the cross. You and I become ground zero, pardon the pun. This is where all the wicked problems of humanity can be transformed in a metanoia or a changing of our hearts and minds through Jesus. Let me be clear here. The transformation of our hearts in relationship with God is the beginning of a journey. It's not the destination. John says it better than I could in 1 John 3 verse 17. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Jesus sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our brothers and sisters and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. I really struggled to write this reflection this week. How do I practice God's love to my Indigenous brothers and sisters? How do I grapple with my own culpability in the institutionalisation of inequality and silencing of Indigenous Australians as part of a cultural heritage of white Australia, even when I never personally intended it? How do I use the voice I have 
How do I make sure I don't perpetuate the silence? This week, the best way I know how to do that for now is to speak it here. I don't know, but I perceive it this week as more of a challenge than I ever have. What is my olive branch? How do I allow the ground zero transformation of my own heart through Jesus to reconcile the landscape of my heart towards Indigenous Australians? If I'm brutally honest, there is so much about the genuine Aboriginal cultural heritage that is close to the heart of the biblical God that I know, including the deeply spiritual connection with land. And I wish as white Australia, we would have the disposition and the heart to listen and acknowledge that. I've got work to do. We've all got work to do. What I do know is that when we worship our land in whatever form, it keeps us in judgment over each other and reflects a counterfeit, a vapour of what land was intended for. It is only when we worship its creator that we can make this land God gifted us, a land worthy of being called home for non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians alike, equally. To that end, my prayer today is the National Reconciliation Prayer by Auntie Betty Pike. I hope you will join me in praying. Creator Spirit, all creation once declared your glory. Your laws were honoured and trusted. Forgive us our neglect as our country approaches the most critical moment of its history. Listen to our prayer as we turn to you. Hear the cry of Jesus, your son, on the cross. Help us to replace our national shame with true national pride by restoring the dignity of our First Peoples whose antiquity is unsurpassed. May our faith and trust in you increase. Only then will our nation grow strong and be a worthy place for all who wish to make their home in our land.